It's no coincidence that abortions go up when Republicans are in charge and down when Democrats are. This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. If you'd like to support the work we're doing, please visit the Contribute tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from The Young Turks, The Tom Hartman Program, Democracy Now!, The David Pakman Show, Propaganda from Bitch Media, Full Frontal with Samantha B., Start Making Sense from The Nation magazine, and Think Progress. Oklahoma is now considering an anti-abortion bill that would effectively make it impossible to get an abortion anywhere in the state, a state which, by the way, already has made it extraordinarily difficult uh, to get an abortion and also uh, legally risky to give an abortion. They have laws that could throw you in jail under certain circumstances if you provide what I thought was a constitutionally protected service or right. Uh, This bill would prohibit any physician who performs abortions deemed unprofessional conduct in the measure from obtaining a license to practice medicine. Under the measure, Oklahoma medical licensure uh, officials would be prohibited from renewing or granting a license to any physician who performs an abortion, except when the procedure is necessary to protect the life of the mother, which means that there are no exceptions for abortions performed in the cases of rape or incest. But don't worry, if it seems crazy. Like, how could you take away their licenses? And by the way, how could you potentially throw them in jail for up to three years for doing what's protected? They will come back and say that it's to protect the life of the unborn. That's a new rationale for it. That hasn't stopped similar laws from being struck down by the Supreme Court. But for some reason, that's the most intellectually uh, complex explanation that they've been able to provide. Now, they are, of course, opposed by many people. The Oklahoma State Medical Association, which represents more than 4,000 physicians and medical students in Oklahoma, opposes the attempt to ban an otherwise legal medical practice, according to uh, uh, Wes Glinsman, the group's uh, director of legislative and political affairs. Uh, Now, this, by the way, is the the story that that we're covering. But there have been even worse bills recently in Oklahoma. Uh, A guy put forward a bill that would have, if you gave gave an abortion, would have landed you with a murder charge. <laughs> because he says, life starts at conception, so you're going to go to jail for murder. They also had a, a bill prohibiting abortions due to a diagnosis of Down syndrome or genetic abnormality. And also a bill mandating that Oklahoma's public schools teach that life begins at conception. Okay. So uh, are we just whole scale ignoring Supreme Court decisions that we don't like? Because if we are, there's a lot I don't like. Mm-hmm. Okay. So how about in the liberal states? Uh, yeah, no, the Supreme Court was preposterous when they ruled that uh, individuals have uh, rights to weapons. No, it says in a well-regulated militia. Your ass is not in a well-regulated militia. Everyone in a liberal state that has a gun is now going to get arrested. Whoa, whoa, whoa. I, we're ignoring the Supreme Court, right? I mean, Roe versus Wade, you obviously can't arrest a doctor for performing a perfectly legal abortion. That's the most obvious thing in the world. Now Oklahoma says, I don't care. I'm going to start arresting doctors. Okay, great. Let's start arresting people. Okay, and this conservatives might like too. But Supreme Court in Citizens United says you can give unlimited money uh, to politicians and it's not bribery. Well, I think it is bribery. I'm going to arrest every politician and every lobbyist in every state that we can, you know, can pass a law and Again, that might not be just liberal states, that might be a lot of states, mm-hmm. right? And we'll put you in jail. Okay? Now look, I would love to do that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but yes, we have laws in this country, we have a constitution in this country. 
and the Supreme Court is one of the three branches, and they decide what is and what is not constitutional. So sad day for us that they decided against us in Citizens United, but that's okay. We're going to get an amendment that goes above the Supreme Court because that will be part of the Constitution. Yeah. Okay. Now, if you don't like a Supreme Court decision, that's one route you can go. Right? You get three quarters of the American people behind you in the form of three quarters of the states. You pass an amendment, then you win. Right? But you don't get to go. Nah, screw it. I'm not following the laws anymore. Okay. So Supreme Court hashtag suck it. Uh, I'm done with you. I'm starting to arrest doctors. That's not how it works. No, no. And and look, the the people who were trying to convince of that of that. Are the ones who say, you know, plain text of the the Constitution. You know, you have to follow the law. They are the law and order party, and they don't see how wrong this is. You gave some examples. I mean, the exact uh, examples we should give are: uh, yes, you have a constitutional right to have a gun, uh, but if you sell a gun, we're going to lock you up. Obviously, we're just going to lock you up, and we're going to make sure that every textbook for every kid says that guns are the devil, and if you use a gun, you are a living demon. They would never accept that. They would never sign on to that. So to think that this is okay is, of course, ridiculous. By the way, As I, I'm sorry. There's one other thing because these guys think that they're driven by religion. They're fools because the Bible is actually pro-abortion. Read it, okay? It says if you think your wife cheated on you, give her a toxic poison, and if the bitch cheated on you, she'll abort the baby, which will be awesome, which is exactly what God wants. I didn't make that up. It's in the. It doesn't say bitch, but outside of that, okay. <laughs> it's in the, the Bible. It's in the Bible. God is pro-abortion. Read it before you go and do pass all these laws based on what you think the Bible says. Okay, but what if we then go? Well, you know, it's in the Constitution, and then the Supreme Court says, of course, that you're allowed to have religious liberty. Yeah, I disagree. Let's start arresting the Christians. Well, no, you can't. You can't do that. I'm a victim. I'm a victim. Right? I know, dude. That's why we don't do it. Mm -hmm. So that's why we follow that's not the, the law. Only reason we don't do it, but that is a reason we don't do <laughs> yes. it. Yes, agreed. Yes, yeah. And and look, I mean, these laws are being considered right now. That murder charge one was being considered earlier this year, and the laws that they already have in Oklahoma are ridiculous. And so we rightfully focused on uh, on Texas recently. They made it significantly harder to exercise the rights that were granted to you under Roe v. Wade. Like this assault continues. It's barely getting talked about in the town halls and the debates. We just assume that both Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton have the right position on this. But I mean, there are a million different ways your rights are being taken away. That's one of the reasons why whoever ends up on the Supreme Court to fill Antonin Scalia's uh, position is so important. You get the right person, a reasonable person on the Supreme Court, and we can start to roll back some of these insane state-level laws that are being passed. You get the wrong person on there, and God only knows what could happen in the next five to ten years. This is really interesting. A new study shows that the number of women dying from pregnancy complications in Texas has doubled.
a trend that seems isolated to the lone states. This was published in the September issue of Obstetrics and Gynecology, a peer-reviewed medical journal, the official publication of the journal of the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists. And they note that while the study's authors don't speculate as to what is causing this trend, they do note an interesting coincidence in timing. Maternal mortality rates, in other words, women dying because they're pregnant, soared right after the Texas legislature slashed funding to Planned Parenthood in 2011. Five years ago, legislators cut the state's family planning budget from $115 million to $37 million, which was just the beginning of a years-long campaign to defund Planned Parenthood in the states. And... uh, now they're discovering that ever since they defunded Planned Parenthood, women are dying twi- twice as frequently from pregnancy in Texas. And only in Texas, not in nearby states. Planned Parenthood had to, had to shut down, I think it was 37 Planned Parenthood facilities around the states. These were facilities that were principally supplying things like prenatal care to poor women and women of color. The, you know, the vast majority of what Planned Parenthood does has nothing to do with abortion. It has to do with keeping women healthy, particularly women of childbearing age. I mean, it is Planned Parenthood after all. And, and although now, you know, they're offering all kinds of other services, mammograms and, and cervical cancer tests and pap smears and all that kind of stuff. But it, it's, uh, or referring them, you know, people are get, getting them to people. But once the Texas legislature cut funding for Planned Parenthood, Women started dying. In other words, Greg Abbott has blood on his hands. I mean, this is this is like this is like Charlene Dill dying in Florida because she she wasn't she was working three jobs. She had two kids. She couldn't afford her medic. She had a heart condition that required uh, regular medication to keep her heart rhythm normal, and she couldn't afford the medication. And she was working three jobs. And so she was like cutting her pills in half and stuff. And here's this woman in her 30s. And she would have qualified for expanded Medicare in Florida. But Rick Scott refused to take the money from the federal government to expand Medicare. So so truly deeply poor people, people who have no income at all in Florida, qualify for this for a fairly crummy state Medicare program. And people making over, what, $18,000, $20,000 a year, whatever the threshold is for, for Obamacare, they qualify for Obamacare, but that middle ground between, say, $3,000 a year income and, and 15000 a year income, and I'm just guessing at the numbers here, but it's in that neighborhood, those folks who are the working poor have no access to health care in the state of Florida because Rick Scott is trying to squeeze Obamacare. He's a Republican, and he's trying to screw Obama because this is like just the official thing. Hey, let's, let's mess with Obama. And Charlene Dill died, among others. Rick Scott has blood on his hands. Greg Abbott has blood on his hands. These Republicans, you know, they, and, and, and the whole bizarre thing is in Texas, when they cut the funding to Planned Parenthood and they cut the funding for, for women's services in the state, the largely Republican men who did this said they were doing it out of concern for women's health. I mean, how sick and twisted does it get? So anyhow, I, I, I just that 
Uh, you know, I saw that story yesterday. It just totally blew my mind. And, and uh, now it's been, this is published in Obstetrics and Gynecology, a peer-reviewed publication. This is not, you know, just some weird speculation. The number of women who have died as a result of being, see, pregnancy, pregnancy is more dangerous than abortion. And, and uh, actually, you know, colonoscopies are more dangerous than abortions. There's, I mean, there's some kinds of dental procedures that are more dangerous than abortion. There's lots of things that are more dangerous than abortions. The pregnancy, though, is certainly more dangerous than abortions. And the number, and, and uh, although this has nothing to do with abortion, this has to do with, you know, the, the, the wise Republican men of Texas making sure that the women of Texas are barefoot and pregnant at home rather than in a pan, Planned Parenthood clinic where an actual, you know, healthcare provider could be they could be referred to or could be seen. Just keep me barefoot and pregnant. That's all I want to be. Just keep me knocked up and cooking. It's a surefire recipe. Well, I'd rather have you come home drunk than not come home at all. Just keep me barefoot and pregnant. And I'll be your baby doll. I ain't bitching if a quickie in the kitchen is all. In Poland, as many as six million women poured into the streets for a nationwide protest Monday, opposing proposals to completely ban abortions across Poland. Already by law, Polish women are only allowed to access an abortion if the child is the result of rape or incest, or if their lives are in danger as a result of the pregnancy. But the new proposed laws would make all abortion illegal and punishable by up to five years in prison for the mother. Doctors could also be jailed for providing abortions. The Catholic Church in Poland is supporting the proposed ban. In Poland, lawmakers have abruptly reversed their position on a proposed total abortion ban after as many as six million Polish women poured into the streets across Poland in a mass protest on Monday. The proposed legislation would make all abortions illegal and punishable by up to five years in prison for patients who obtained them. Doctors could also be jailed for providing abortions. As an anti-consumerism advocate, I would like to encourage you to shop less, don't buy things you don't need, and get everything you can get used from a place like Craigslist. You will save yourself a boatload of money and reduce the endless flow of new stuff getting shipped across the world because that seems more convenient than meeting a neighbor. Failing that, try a locally owned small business. 
Failing that, if you're left with no choice other than to buy something from a place like Amazon, then at least there's a way you can do it and support this show at the same time. Simply click through to Amazon.com, Amazon.ca, or Amazon.co.uk from the banner at bestofleft.com and shop as you normally would. Better yet, click through on the link to your country's Amazon store only once and then bookmark that link to use every time you shop. Your shopping experience will be identical to normal. It will cost you nothing extra, but 7 to 8% of the cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whether that be rejecting consumption altogether, consuming sustainably, or at least consuming in a subversive way. Interesting news out of Poland, where an anti-abortion initiative gathered 450,000 signatures in support of a total abortion ban. There's been a parliamentary commission uh, which, as a result of these signatures, started to analyze a total abortion ban, meaning no exceptions for rape or incest or health of the mother. It's at least been slowed down somewhat by these mass protests that resulted from the initial 450,000 signatures. The largest were on Monday, just a few days ago, when thousands of women turned out in Poland dressed in black. For people who don't know, Poland already outlaws abortions with exceptions for rape, incest, badly damaged fetuses or when the mother's life is at risk. But because of the culture around abortion in Poland, there are already doctors who cite moral objections and they won't even perform the few abortions that would be considered legal in Poland. Uh, and very often Polish women end up going to Germany or other countries or buying abortion pills online, which is, of course, less than ideal when really they should be able to just find these services locally in a way that is not going to be stigmatized or, or concerning to anybody. Uh, Yaroslaw Gowan, who's a member of Poland's conservative government and the minister of science and higher education, said that the protests by women have, quote, caused us to think and taught us humility. Uh, that's good. Uh, there are a few stories here for me. Number one is that, hey, if people work together and activate, you actually can make a difference and influence government, which sometimes is really hard to believe, especially in a country as large and sort of ideologically diverse as the, as the United States. It's hard to imagine a protest really getting the attention of government. Now, we this is not dead in the water in Poland, but they are at least thinking about it in a more detailed way before moving forward. But the other aspect of this is that the world is actually moving to the left on abortion. There are still many parts of the world where abortion laws are very backwards and retrograde. But increasingly, even in relatively historically conservative areas that oppose abortion, there is a louder and and more sort of uh, present pro choice movement. And I'll show you a map here of abortion laws around the world. And you'll notice that the real areas of concern are the Middle East and parts of Africa, a lot of Africa, really, other other than than very southern Africa uh, and significant areas of concern also in South and South and Central America. Uh, and this is this is why this really matters. I mean, there needs to be an understanding that you're not going to be able to just say, hey, you know what? It's just illegal. It doesn't matter if there was rape. It doesn't matter if there was incest. It doesn't matter if there's an issue with the health of the mother. Uh, that's just not going to fly. And, and I'm hopeful, Rachel. I don't know if this is going to be the case, but I'm hopeful 
that the idea of a total ban on abortion will in five or 10 years seem flat out inhumane more than it does already. Right. But I think also a lot of people are asking the question kind of of why now, for instance, when the Soviet Union fell in 1989 and these second wave feminists were kind of met with this staunch opposition from the Roman Catholic Church. Okay, that's then. But why is this happening now? Why in Poland, you mean, or why uh, worldwide we're seeing a, a going to the left on abortion, uh, uh, fav- you know, favoring or opposing abortion? Why in Poland now? Uh, right. No, I mean, I think the real question is why in Poland now did we first see 450,000 signatures gathered to ban abortion altogether? Because that really was the catalyst for the counter protest. And I, I actually don't know the answer to that. Uh, I, I mean, we know that generally speaking, the religious right groups are better organized and they will create an issue out of thin air and uh, force opposing views to have to coalesce and activate. But it's an absolutely fair question. Why now? noticed how in movies and TV shows, if a character gets pregnant and is considering having an abortion, a surprising amount of the time, something horrible will befall her. She'll be killed or commit suicide or go through with the abortion only to discover the doctor is a completely unsanitary quack. But in reality, abortion is an extremely safe medical procedure in places where it's legal. Writer and sociologist Gretchen Sisson discussed this disconnect in the blood and guts issue of Bitch. Gretchen is the co-author of a study that surveyed more than 300 films and TV shows where abortion is a plotline. Here she reads her article, which is titled, There Will Be Blood. We, mankind, have progressed so far. The season finale of The Nick, the Cinemax show set in the Gilded Age Hospital in New York City, begins with Dr. John Thackeray as he cuts into a woman's uterus. Her clothes and the bed underneath her are drenched in blood. From such humble beginnings through the astonishing modern world in which we now live. The woman's pulse fades and vanishes beneath the nurse's fingertips. The operating theater is quiet for but a moment until Dr. Thackeray cuts open the woman's chest to manually compress her heart, not in the hopes of reviving her, but in an attempt to salvage the situation and experiment on a fresh corpse. This frantic failed abortion is not especially gruesome within the wider context of the Nick. At the Knickerbocker Hospital, things are often grisly. Patients die one after the other. The hospital administrator embezzles money and steals bodies. Thackeray, the hero surgeon, is a racist cocaine addict. Bloodiness is not unusual, and medical failure is expected. This single abortion story is noteworthy, not because of its gore, but because it typifies the way abortion is portrayed in popular culture. The Nick's portrayal is just one example that follows a century-old precedent set by the earliest examples of American on-screen abortion stories. The first of such stories was written and directed by Lois Weber. 
As a female filmmaker, Weber was an anomaly in cinema's earliest days. She was also a professed admirer of Margaret Sanger's activism, including her rejection of legal abortion in favor of gaining wider support for birth control. In Weber's 1916 silent film entitled, Where Are My Children?, a district attorney is busy prosecuting a family planning doctor for the charge of obscenity, while his wife secretly obtains repeat abortions and helps her friends to do the same. At the end of the film, the attorney and his wife face a lifetime of lonely, bereft childlessness, and ultimately, their maid's daughter ends up much like the failed abortion patient in the Nick. Nearly a hundred years of on-screen abortions are bookended with dead women. In reality, abortion is a simple, fast, safe medical procedure. It can be done as an outpatient procedure taking less than an hour or by taking pills in your own home. Today, the statistical risk of death from abortion in the United States is virtually zero. The risk of major complication is 0.2%. Approximately 1.1 million abortions are obtained in the United States each year, and the vast majority lead to no physical injury whatsoever. But on screen, abortion is a fraught, dangerous, and often deadly plot point. In research my colleague Katrina Kimport and I published in the journal Contraception, we used online sources to identify more than 300 films and TV shows that included abortion storylines over the past 100 years. 14% of plot lines included the death of a woman who considered getting an abortion, whether or not she actually obtained one. Frequently, these deaths were the result of violence. Characters committed suicide or were killed either while contemplating what to do about their pregnancies or after getting an abortion. About 5% of fictional women, like the character in the Nick, died because of medical complications of the abortion, and about 20% of characters faced major consequences such as infection, hemorrhage, hysterectomy, depression, and infertility. On screen, clearly, abortions are much, much more dangerous than in real life. Of course, we cannot and should not expect the on-screen world to perfectly mirror reality. Screenwriters find drama and humor in rare, extreme, bizarre, or fantastical circumstances. Yet while other medical procedures, such as CPR, are consistently shown as safer and more effective on television, abortion continues to be depicted as unsafe. These manifold stories linking abortion risk build a social mythology that abortion is dangerous for women, full stop. It is easy to imagine how these gruesome, dangerous depictions of abortion could affect political ideas. When abortion seems so bloody and unsafe, is it any wonder that abortion restrictions framing abortion as dangerous gain political traction? That hospital admitting privileges for abortion providers might make sense? As our popular culture builds and reflects the social myth of abortion as dangerous, such regulations become a resonant way for politicians to restrict abortion access while painting a picture of concern for women and their health. What then would feminist on-screen portrayals of abortion look like? It's important to understand that while the dangerous abortions on screen seem to express anti-abortion sentiment, it doesn't mean the people who created the episodes and films are anti-abortion themselves. The writers of Friday Night Lights, for example, consulted with Whole Women's Health, a Texas abortion provider, to ensure that they accurately reflected Texas law at the time. 
Do you think I'm going to hell if I have an abortion? No, honey, I don't. Plus, many of the unsafe abortions on screen are actually set at historical moments when abortion may have been more dangerous, and their portrayal as such might build a case supporting safe and legal abortion. The slow spreading of blood across the back of April's dress in Revolutionary Road and the shivering pale face of Penny in Dirty Dancing are dangerous abortions that can be understood as progressive, even feminist, because they support the idea that illegal abortion is harmful. He didn't use no ether, nothing. I thought you said he was at real empty. The guy had a dirty knife and a folding table. I could hear her screaming in the hallway, and I swear to God, Johnny, I tried to get in. I tried. It's all right. Most on-screen representations of modern-day abortions lauded by feminists avoid the physical experience of the procedure entirely. As viewers, we might see the prologue and epilogue to the abortion while never following the character to the clinic for the procedure, as in the Friday Night Lights storyline. Sometimes we might enter the operating room, which is, to say the least, not what most clinics look like, only to have the screen fade to black before the abortion begins, like in Grey's Anatomy, which has certainly never shied away from showing a medical procedure of any other stripe. In the case of the 2014 Jenny Slate film, Obvious Child, the story is sanitized through lightheartedness and humor, and in the HBO show Girls, an abortion decision is followed by after-the-fact flippancy. Hey, Max, remember from before when we did sex to each other? I can't get your blouse off. I'm having your abortion. Do you want to share a dessert? Leave with that. Definitely leave with that. Perfect. This is not a criticism of these stories. They are careful, nuanced, and well-written. They focus on the woman making the decision and not the clinical procedure itself. They are also, often explicitly, calibrated responses to the goriness of political anti-abortion imagery. Such responses are necessary, and they deserve to be viewed and enjoyed by feminists. However, we should also recognize that the reality of abortion, even safe, straightforward abortion, can be messier than that. To explore this, it's important to consider what contemporary abortion actually looks like. There is a long preamble of decision-making, appointment planning, and for more and more women, fundraising, traveling, forced ultrasound viewing, and mandatory waiting. But when it comes to the actual procedure, studies show that between 82 and 93% of patients are satisfied with their care. It seems then that the cumulative cultural effect of anti-abortion imagery has made it difficult for popular culture to acknowledge the physical or even clinical experience of contemporary abortion in a feminist way. We are left with this tension. Abortion is safe, but we cannot dismiss it as a bodily experience. How do we understand and represent the corporeal experience of abortion, which involves blood and often pain, to be sure, without ceding ground to the violent, gruesome, and gory ideas promoted by anti-abortion propaganda? Is this, should this, even be the goal of popular culture? Perhaps not. For nearly every abortion story shown on screen, even those that seem truly out of the ordinary, there is a viewer with whom that story will resonate as similar to their own. It is a tall order to expect popular culture to reflect a range of logistical, emotional, and physical experiences around abortion in a thoughtful way. If an abortion is too bloody, it becomes scary. But if an experience is too simplified, it leads the work involved in obtaining and undergoing an abortion. This double-edged sword is particularly unwieldy. 
Film and TV creators shouldn't try to navigate this balance in each story they want to tell, because whatever good faith story they do tell will likely reflect someone's reality. Abortion is bloody. It can be uncomfortable, even painful. But blood does not inherently equate with the violence and danger that the anti-abortion movement wants it to. As you may know, I'm a big fan of not buying things I don't need and keeping my consumerism to a minimum, but the yin to that yang is that I also believe in supporting the things that I get a lot of value out of, and as both a consumer and a producer of independent media, I depend on that value being shared by lots of other people. So if you get some value out of this or any other independently produced show on a regular basis, then I hope you will take the time to support it. On my website, under the Contribute tab, you can sign up to donate any amount you want on a one-time or monthly basis. PayPal's the default, but I know a lot of people hate it or have trouble with it or whatever. So there's also Dwala you can use. It allows safe and simple bank-to-bank transfers with no transaction fees, which is nice. Or I can help you get set up with a recurring payment on your credit or debit card using Square. And if you sign up to donate six bucks a month or more, you get access to a podcast of bonus episodes that I make in which I tell some stories and mull over some big ideas. This week, I've been on a little trip to visit family. I, I saw some pretty blatant propaganda on my way out at the BWI airport. And it was saying essentially that Bernie Sanders and all of his supporters are leading us down the path to communism and death camps. And since I got to see my brother on this trip, who is the only real life communist I know, I sat down with him and recorded our conversation about the propaganda that I had seen and then a bunch of other stuff that came up as well. Uh, So you're not going to want to miss that. So again, you can support this independent show by going to the Contribute tab at bestoftheleft.com. Thanks so much for your support. one of the issues that was raised last night. This is debate moderator Chris Wallace. What I'm asking you, sir, is do you want to see the court overturn? You've just said you want to see the court protect the Second Amendment. Do you want to see the court overturn Roe v. Well, if we put another two or perhaps three justices on, that's really what's going to be, that will happen. And that'll happen automatically, in my opinion, because I am putting pro-life justices on the court. I will say this, it will go back to the states and the states will then make a determination. I do not think the United States government should be stepping in and making those most personal of decisions. So you can regulate if you are doing so with the life and the health of the mother taken into account. Mr. Trump, your reaction, and particularly on this issue of late-term partial birth Well, I think it's terrible. Uh, If you go with what Hillary is saying, in the ninth month, you can take the baby and rip the baby out of the womb of the mother just prior to the birth of the baby. Chris and Clark, your response to what Trump said last night. You know, um, 
first of all, we need to recognize that we've got an eight-member Supreme Court right now. Um, our highest court in the nation is uh, broken, and without a critical ninth member needed to ensure that we can resolve some of the gravest issues that come uh, before the court each term. Um, you know, I am deeply concerned. Uh, you know, I heard one candidate last night talking about the Senate needing to do its job right now uh, to recognize that there is a nominee pending for that vacancy, Merrick Garland. Um, I heard one candidate uh, talking about the need for the Senate to, to move right now uh, on Garland's vacancy. Come January, whoever is taking over the White House will have a constitutional duty and obligation to fill any vacant seats that may exist at that moment for the Supreme Court. But an important part of the narrative right now needs to be, uh, you know, the fact that we have a Senate uh, that is about political obstruction. We have a, a Senate that refuses to move on uh, the pending nomination of Merrick Garland, and now thrusting the nation, uh, you know, into a constitutional crisis. This is the longest period that we've gone without an unfilled uh, Supreme Court seat. Uh, throughout history, there have been vacancies that have arisen during presidential election years, and Congress has done its job uh, to consider, provide advice and consent. Uh, is what the Constitution says. They've considered nominees. Uh, but the, you know, I'm deeply concerned about this era of obstruction, political obstruction that we are in. As we look ahead for 2017, I think it's important that we have a leader in place who can get us past this era of political Great. obstruction uh, and, and move the, the Senate to a place where it does its job one of the most important of which is filling that vacant seat. Hoping to hear a debate moderator ask about climate change, <laughs> you have to wait another four years. And I suggest you do it on higher ground. But if you were hoping to hear old men talk about vaginas some more, hey, it's your lucky night! I want to explore how far you believe the right to abortion goes. You also voted against a ban on late-term partial birth abortions. Excuse me a sec. Joe? Thank you so much. Thank you. <clears throat> Partial birth abortions aren't a thing. Thank you so much. Yeah. It's a non-medical term the National Right to Life Committee made up in the 90s for a procedure that was outlawed in 2003 by the Partial Birth Abortion Ban Act, seen here being signed by George W. Bush, along with some of Congress's leading women's health experts. And look, there's Denny Hastert, who was appalled by the idea of destroying a living thing he might already be attracted to. <laughs> 
Chris Wallace conflated partial birth abortion, which doesn't exist, with late-term abortion, which does. Rarely. Only 1.3% of abortions take place at or after 21 weeks. And guess what? It's not because women are selfish sluts who wake up in their third trimester and decide, not into this, I want to procrast abortion. It's usually because the tests done at that point reveal a fatal birth defect or serious risk to the mother's life. And if Mike Wallace's son got abortion that wrong, you can imagine how much wronger Trump got it. Bigly wronger. You can take the baby and rip the baby out of the womb in the ninth month on the final day. And that's not acceptable. Well, that is not what happens. Yeah, no kidding. A lot like Trump has confused abortions with bear attacks. Removing a baby from a woman's womb in the ninth month isn't an abortion, it's a birth. And I'm sure Donald Trump would love to outlaw it. It makes the pussies too gross and screamy for grabbing. And while Donald may not understand how abortion works, he should be very familiar with the concept of unviable. For instance, Trump Airlines or Trump Steaks, Trump Vodka, Trump Magazine, not to mention the entire Trump brand on November 9th. This debate was when Hillary's mask of self-control finally slipped, revealing the awful secret she's been hiding this whole time. Authenticity and passion. You should meet with some of the women that I've met with, women I've known over the course of my life. This is one of the worst possible choices that any woman and her family has to make. I can tell you the government has no business in the decisions that women make, and I will stand up for that right. Two things. Hell yes. Men, if you don't get why it's important to have a woman as a major party nominee, check your social media feed. Actually, log in as your wife. You'll see that all week women have been sharing deeply personal stories of pregnancies that went wrong. They were buying t-shirts and warming to a passionate, unapologetic feminist we haven't seen since the 90s. One who stood in a shower of shit and managed to do what 16 primary candidates and the entire Republican establishment couldn't. Namely, beat this dick-waving Berlusconi knockoff like a little bitch. Miss Rodham, if you're nasty, we'll be right back. What's it like to be an abortion provider in an anti-choice state? To find out, we turn to Dr. Leah Torres. She's an obstetrician gynecologist in Salt Lake City. We reached her today in Salt Lake City. Dr. Torres, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. Could we start by having you read us what it says at the top of your Twitter page? Yes. My pinned tweet says, I perform abortions. I am not evil. I keep my patients safe. I respect my patients. I am a person 
I do not deserve to be murdered. And of course, there was that Planned Parenthood clinic in Colorado Springs that was attacked last year. Three people were killed, nine injured by a gunman who who got inside. Colorado is right next to Utah. Colorado Springs is something like a 400-mile drive from Salt Lake City. I imagine you've thought a lot about what happened in Colorado Springs. What precautions do you take around your work? It breaks my heart that it's still something that I have to think about when I go to work every day. But I, you know, I take the proper precautions just like anybody would. You know, I make sure that I don't wear scrubs outside. I don't make myself very noticeable. Um, I use a post office box as opposed to my house address. I, I don't think I take extraordinary measures because, again, part of my trying to reduce this violence is to be out and be proud, as it were, about my taking care of people in a safe and proactive manner. What are the laws in Utah about abortion? Well, I think that we have a limited time, but I will okay. uh, run through the <laughs> run through the big ones. So, abortions have to be performed in not just an outpatient clinic, but an outpatient clinic meeting certain specifications, and that's under the guise of safety. Yet, at the same time. Abortions are not allowed, and it is illegal to perform abortions in the safest place possible, which is the hospital, through the state law. So there are many state laws that contradict each other as far as where abortions can be performed, who can perform them, how they're paid for, when they can be done. It's enough to make anybody pull their hair out and just scream, let me practice medicine, please. And if if a woman needs an abortion in Utah, how how many how many places can she go to? There are two clinics in the state of Utah and one in particular that goes into the second trimester. So we see people accessing care from a 500-mile radius. And that is with an additional 3-day waiting period. So the financial and time burdens on people needing to access abortion care in and around this state alone is extraordinary. We know that Mormon culture makes Utah somewhat different from the states where evangelical Protestantism is strong. In Utah, for example, we've recently learned there's less support for Donald Trump than in the so-called Bible Belt, apparently because people in the LDS Church aren't enthusiastic about a government targeting a religious group. They they know that that Mormons were once targeted by the United States government. Are, are there differences between the attitudes towards abortion and the treatment of abortion providers in Utah compared to other anti-abortion states? You know, I think that anyone who is against abortion for whatever reason, whether it's religious or simply personal beliefs, at the end of the day, to prohibit someone from accessing medical care to prohibit someone from accessing an abortion that they want is reproductive coercion, regardless if you're coming from a Catholic background, an LDS background, a, you know, just Christian, Judaic, like it doesn't matter what background you have. People need access to abortion and it should not be made more difficult. It should be made easier, more accessible because that keeps these procedures safe. And what brought you to Salt Lake City? Uh, further training in abortion care, ironically. Wow. Tell us a little more about yeah, it, that. how that happened. It's uh, fate, as it were. So I felt that after residency training, I did not have 
adequate training in providing abortions and providing abortion care. So I sought a fellowship in family planning, and that concentrates around clinical research, contraception, and abortion care. And so the family planning program, the family planning fellowship that I was matched to in, in medical training, we kind of have like a draft sort of scenario. So I was matched to the program at the University of Utah. Amazing. So I understand you do abortions one Saturday a month. What do you do Monday through Friday? Everything else. Uh, I do deliveries, prenatal care, pap smears, physical exams, contraception, everything, you know, hysterectomies, everything that an OBGYN does in general practice. You uh, talked about the Utah law requiring that abortion clinics have surgical facilities. On the legal front, the Supreme Court in June struck down the Texas law with the same requirement. Doesn't this mean the Utah law will be struck down pretty soon? That all depends. So, and this is a point of confusion for many of us in this country. So just because a federal guideline or law is upheld by the Supreme Court does not automatically revoke those laws in other states. So the laws here will need to be challenged. And what that means is they're going to have to go to court. Whether or when that will happen, no one really knows. But it does stand to reason that that should not be a thing because the Supreme Court said it is against, it's unconstitutional. Speaking of points of confusion, Utah has a law requiring that anesthesia be administered to the fetus before an abortion. How do you do that? Well, I'm still waiting for the legislators to tell me because I really don't know. Uh, they still haven't gone back to me about that. I've called them into my clinic. I've called them into the operating room. I've called them in a public forum. I've asked them, and they still are unable to tell me how. And so I'm going to continue to provide the evidence-based medicine that I know how to provide. And if they would like to challenge that, they should and can and are welcome to do so. The argument in favor of abortion is is changing. We used to say everybody wants abortion to be rare. Is that your emphasis now? I don't agree with that statement personally, and I don't think many professionals do. To say that it should be rare is to say that it's a bad thing. I don't think it's a bad thing. I think we all want fewer abortions because I think ultimately the goal for anyone in our society and anyone who is a humanitarian should be Every pregnancy is desired. Every pregnancy is planned because those are the healthiest pregnancies. And that results in healthier families. And so speaking as someone who is part of humanity, I think abortions are going to be whatever they need to be. But ideally, every pregnancy is one that is planned and desired. I'm sure you know that California is one of the small number of states that have made abortion easier. Starting in 2014, it permitted nurse practitioners, certified nurse midwives, and physicians' assistants to perform one kind of abortion called aspiration abortion during the first trimester. Don't you wish you were in California? There are many reasons I wish I were in California, but... Okay. Uh, California is a bit of a Shangri-La, and I think I'm definitely much more needed here, unfortunately. So uh, I'll stay here. How long do you plan to keep doing this in Utah? Until I can't ski here anymore, probably. <laughs> that's that's. I, I assume that will be a long time. Hopefully. 
some abortion providers keep uh, a low profile, try to stay out of the public eye as much as possible. You have taken sort of the opposite stance. You have a very public identity. You argue in public. You write about it. Why have you taken that stance? I think it's because I've seen what silence and stigma and shame do to the reproductive health access and human rights movement. Basically, if people are shamed into silence, the myths will perpetuate, the misinformation and the lies will, will perpetuate. And as we've seen, violence will, will perpetuate. I, I don't let anyone hold over my head that they're going to find me. That's a big thing. That's a very big intimidating uh, intimidation tool that the anti-choice movement uses over over providers is we're going to tell your neighbors, we're going to tell your friends, we're going to, you know, do all these things to you in your social circles. I take that power away from them by being out. I take the power of shame and stigma away from them by being out and proud. I give people great health care and they are able to achieve the goals that they have in life as a result. There is no shame in that, and I'm super proud and honored to be able to do that. Freedom and blood, I make my mark and fight for tomorrow. Finally, I've got some there, something I can raise my voice for. Fire, tell them who you really want. Fire, well, you'll get yours and I'll get mine. Proud, I'm proud to be, proud to see the same proud. Proud to be, I'm proud to be me. They said, tell me. Oh, you got to tell me. You might already know that federal funds can't be used to pay for abortion. But did you know this policy was created with the explicit goal of discrimination? I certainly would like to prevent, if I could legally, anybody having an abortion. A rich woman, a middle-class woman, or a poor woman. Unfortunately, the only vehicle available is the Medicaid bill. That's Henry Hyde, the Illinois representative who created the Hyde Amendment just four years after Roe versus Wade. And 40 years later, Hyde is still disproportionately preventing communities of color younger generations, and low-income Americans from accessing abortion. Not only have women who have Medicaid insurance effect, have, have been affected, but military women, women who are in the Peace Corps, Native American women, immigrants, uh, residents in D.C. have all unfortunately suffered um, from the progeny of that, uh, of that policy. That's an estimated 20 million people who have to pay out of pocket for their health care, which is supposed to be constitutionally protected. And while Hyde has been around for decades, most people didn't start paying attention to it until recently. We have gone from people not speaking or hearing about this issue to one that's got the attention of members of Congress, grassroots activists across the nation, and pop culture icons. We even have a presidential candidate who's talked about repealing the Hyde Amendment. So we've come a long way. Yep, you heard that right. Let's repeal laws like the Hyde Amendment. And that's not all. As a result, a national bill to repeal Hyde was introduced in Congress last year. And that goal was added to the official Democratic Party platform. 
for the first time ever. After 40 years of Hyde, you can expect to hear a lot more about it. I had an abortion, but I knew very clearly that my obligation was to my six-month-old, and I'm not going to feel sorry about that. Having that abortion made it possible for me to build a career, to get a college education, to, to, to build a, a, a healthy and strong and, and whole life. Abortion stories are as diverse as the people who have them. the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and angry, here's what you can do about it. Today's activism, keep the pressure on Congress to be bold and end the Hyde Amendment. We know this story all too well. Forty years ago, a rich white guy wrote and passed a law that negatively impacted the health and welfare of women in poverty for decades to come. And of course, it disproportionately harms people of color, immigrants, the LGBT community, young people, and rural communities. Thanks to Mr. Hyde and his Hyde Amendment, it is against federal law for government funds to cover even one cent of the cost of a safe legal abortion, effectively putting abortion out of reach for millions on Medicaid. As Maine State Senator Dave Miramont wrote this month, quote, The U.S. Supreme Court affirmed women's right to choose for themselves when to start a family back in 1973, but a right isn't really a right when it's dictated by how much money you make, unquote. Right now, nearly one in six women of reproductive age are enrolled in the federal Medicaid program. Fifteen states currently have policies that provide state Medicaid coverage of an abortion, but 60% of women on federal Medicaid do not live in those states. And it's important to note that transgender women who are not necessarily included in these statistics still need access to reproductive health care and are living in poverty at four times the national average, with Medicaid as their only option. But Hyde is not just harming those on Medicaid. It has provided a path for anti-choice politicians to add abortion coverage and funding bans to appropriations language that restricts Medicare and Children's Health Insurance program enrollees, federal employees and their dependents, Peace Corps volunteers, Native Americans, women in federal prisons and detention centers, including those detained for immigration purposes, women who receive health care from community health centers, survivors of human trafficking, and low-income women in Washington, D.C. The organization All Above All is leading the fight to end the Hyde Amendment. Not only are they educating the country about the devastating impact of Hyde with fact sheets, videos, and articles, but they are taking direct action on the state and local level to pass resolutions that would allow abortion coverage. Visit allaboveall.org and click ACT to sign up, find resources, and join in on the state and local actions near you. You can also engage by spreading All Above All's resources and facts on social media and using the hashtag BeBoldEndHide to encourage politicians to stand up for the reproductive rights of those in poverty. For the first time, repealing the Hyde Amendment is part of the Democratic Party's platform, but it's up to us to hold them to it. We encourage you to make fighting for reproductive justice part of your theory of change by getting involved in the long term with organizations like All Above All, Planned Parenthood, the Center for Reproductive Rights, NARAL Pro-Choice America, and other organizations fighting to provide everyone with the reproductive health care access and coverage they deserve. 
The segment notes include all of the links to this information, as well as additional resources, and as always, this and every activism segment we produce is archived and organized under the Activism tab at bestoftheleft.com, so of making sure that everyone, regardless of their income, can make their own healthcare decisions is important to you, then be sure to hit the share buttons to spread the word about keeping the pressure on Congress to be bold and into the Hyde Amendment via social media so that others in your network can take action too. Can you stand up and be counted as a body in a crowd? Put your name on a petition with your signature so proud. Can you raise your voice so loud as you stand with head on bowed? Weather beating on your brow, demanding answers here and now. Cause that's how you make a difference in this fickle world of change. Uh, the, the first one is from the Christian Post. and I, I, This is, I find, particularly interesting. Christian Post is a, you know, it's a website slash magazine that is for Christians. And uh, they, and this is uh, from uh, ChristianPost.com slash news slash Hillary Clinton is the best choice for voters against abortion with hyphens between each word and then a bunch of numbers. Uh, but it should be fairly easy to find. It's a, a e. Uh, E.H.R. Ernest, over a Democratic underground, reposted a piece of it at DU, which is where I found it. And this this uh, uh, clip says abortions rose steadily during the tenure of the first pro-life Republican President Ronald Reagan. They reached their highest level under President George H.W. Bush. Abortions then dropped dramatically under President Clinton falling to 60% of the high under his pro-life Republican predecessor. That downward trend stalled during most of President uh, George W. Bush's tenure and remained basically flat until the final two years of his term when Democrats retook Congress. And then abortions plunged again under Obama, falling to their lowest point in 40 years. It's no coincidence that abortions go up when Republicans are in charge and down when Democrats are, the two biggest indicators a woman will have an abortion are that she is poor. 75% of women who have abortions make less than $23,000 a year, and half of them make less than $11,000 a year, or had an unintended pregnancy. Half of U.S. pregnancies are unintended, and 43% and of those end in abortion. And then they go on to say, you know, which political party is more effective at reducing poverty and unwanted pregnancies? Because there is an association between the two. It's not the pro-life party that in this last congressional session alone fought to cut medical care for poor mothers and children, fought to cut food programs for kids, and fought to, to cut contra- contraception coverage and access for women. And then they point out that uh, in the states with legislators that have seriously tried to limit abortion, only about 10% of the nation's abortions happen in those states. I mean, presumably women are traveling to other states. But they say compare that to nearly 40 years of data. So in other words, if, if all those states just banned abortions altogether, it only cut 10 percent of the abortions in the United States. They say compare that to nearly 40 years of data showing that we would save more than three times as many unborn children by cutting the number of poor women in half, increase, increase contraception access, family leave and, impro- and improve pre and postnatal health care. And we cut abortions by 50 percent or more. Seven out of ten women who have had an abortion already have kids. They are desperate, alone, scared, probably ashamed, and without options. 
pro-life slogans won't change that reality. Being duped yet again into voting Republican will only create more women like that. What those women and their unborn children need are Christians with the courage and faith not to repeat the political folly of the last 40 years. In other words, the so-called pro-life party, the so-called family values party, whenever they're in power, abortions go up. Bill Clinton famously said he wanted to make abortions, you know, legal, safe, and rare. And that's what they did. And they cut the number of abortions. So, so if you consider yourself pro-life, anti-abortion, the, 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 the ticket is clear. Reduce poverty among women, empower women, provide prenatal care, provide contraception, and you'll cut abortions in half in this country. We just heard clips today from the Young Turks discussing the states that are ignoring Roe versus Wade with impunity. Tom Hartman explained that Republican policies, regardless of their pro-life rhetoric, result in higher abortion rates. Democracy Now! read the headlines on the protest against the abortion ban in Poland. David Pakman also reported on the Polish protests and the uncertain future of the proposed ban. Propaganda from Bitch Magazine shared one of their articles about the ridiculous ways that abortion is usually portrayed in film and television. Democracy Now! discussed the portion of the third presidential debate in which Trump talked about his hope to overturn Roe v. Wade with his Supreme Court pick. Samantha B. on Full Frontal further dismantled the debate discussion of abortion. Start Making Sense from The Nation magazine interviewed Leah Torres about what it's like to be an abortion provider in Utah. Think Progress put together a video about the Hyde Amendment. Today's activism is in support of All Above All in their campaign to end the Hyde Amendment. And finally, we just heard Tom Hartman draw the connection between poverty and abortion. You can find links to each of these segments in the show notes for easy reference and sharing. And now, we'll hear from you. Hey, this is Rebecca. I'm in Seattle. I didn't always live here. I just listened to your podcast about women and rape culture and across the world. And I just want to say it was really harrowing for me to listen to it um, because it brought back a lot of old memories and I don't like memories personally. I think there are innumerable women in this country and across the face of the earth rape and rape culture. And it's written off as I was doing something for you. I was doing you a favor. And, uh, okay. I was 18. I had a man get me drunk and promised a friend he was going to take care of me. And, uh, to one of my friends. And then he took my virginity. I was a mess for years. And it's not okay that it happened to me. And when it happens to the next girl, it's so important the work you do. Thank you so much. I just wanted to say thank you so much.
for doing this episode. An incredible amount to me. Thank you. Hello, Jay. This is V from uh, Central New York. I'm listening to episode 1045 on racism. And um, I wanted to make a couple of quick points for your listeners. The first being answering the question, which I seem to hear a lot, from supposedly good white people. I often tell them that they have to first come to the realization that the police, as they are trained, are a military outfit. A friend, a former uh, military specialist, actually confirmed this to me. He said, listen, when I went through training in the 1970s, we learned that police were there to maintain order, not for the ordinary citizen, but for the wealthy. They are a military instrument. What does this then mean for how we should approach them? It actually means that for the so-called white person, I often emphasize the so-called and try to um, help my friends understand that they are not white. They are European American. And all you have to do is look back at the history of racism in this country to actually appreciate who the elite believe are white. But in doing that, you have to keep in mind that the so-called white person turned white to help the elite when they weren't white 120 years ago. What needs to happen as far as approaching the policing problem? is truthfully, all European Americans need to set their minds to the fact that they need social workers. They need to become, again, the social force which constructs their society and helps heal the wounds which were caused either by the economic situation or by the situation which is which really is caused um, uh, by our health, by drugs, by the stuff that we take into our mind, music, our entertainment. That is really how we are going to solve the policing problem. Police were never meant to do the tasks which we are convinced they should be doing. There, there was a propaganda campaign, basically, that started in the 1970s to rebrand what the police officer's job was. And prior to that, most people understood police were incapable of dealing with mentally handicapped people. We shouldn't call them for that. They were not capable of dealing with um, domestic issues. We should not call them for that. Or if we did call them for that, we should know they aren't going to handle it very well. And doubly, we knew that they weren't good with handling racial problems. I can say one name to you, and you're going to say, oh yeah, that was a police officer, Bull Connor. (laughs) Bull Connor. Often people forget King and the civil rights were fighting 
against well-entrenched police departments who were keepers and bearers of the status quo, which were racist. And this wasn't only in the South. This was in the North, too. In other words, to sum this all up, the so-called white person needs to get it in their mind, one, that they have more power than they think they do. And when they stop believing that they are white, that they are privileged, not that they have white privilege, but that they are first white and that there are privileges that go along with that, it will free them to see that power. And then two, to deal with the policing problem, you must become active in recalibrating the structures in your community to that old social worker model. And if you don't know what that is, Look up social worker in the archive.org files and read some of the wonderful books on that aspect, on that concept, should I say, from the 1800s and the early 1900s. Thank you very much, man. Keep up the good work. Peace. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, simply record a message at 202-999-3991. Now, to wrap up here, I, I just I want to go back to the, the topic of today's members-only bonus content, because I'm so fascinated by it that I want to give you just a little bit more of a taste of what that conversation is about. So as I said, I'm on a little trip right now visiting family. I passed through BWI Airport in Baltimore, and I saw this big you know, advertisement on the wall, which is pretty obviously propaganda in some form or another right away, but you, know, you can't get to the full depths of what it is until you, you know, really dig into it. But here's what the, the big poster on the wall says. Free enterprise versus socialism. Where on the scale do we maximize liberty and prosperity for all? And that question is a perfectly good and interesting question. It, it's I think it's sort of one of the fundamental discussions we need to be having right now. If you asked Marxist economist Richard Wolff from Economic Update, if he thought that was a valid question, he, I think he would say yes. I don't think that he thinks that free enterprise should be thrown into the ash heap of history, but there is a balance. You know, his big thing is worker cooperatives. So socialism in the sense that, you know, sort of bottom up socialism where we work together and we don't have hierarchical, uh, you know, owners versus workers, that sort of thing. But then free enterprise still sort of works in the system. You know, markets are still part of the system. Like, it is, it's a very interesting question. So, you know, obviously it caught my eye. And I thought, you know, I, I just instinctually, I don't think I'm going to trust the opinion of whoever this organization is. Because I don't imagine an organization who is advertising on the wall of an airport asking that question has a legitimate desire to have that question answered honestly, you know, it just, it just feels like the sort of thing that's going to be a big old switcheroo and their, their answer is going to be, uh, no, no socialism at all. We need our exact status quo to continue because 
the money that we spent on this ad on the wall is earned through our capitalist enterprise right now, and we want to keep it that way. That was just my guess. So I click through, and you know, I, I give more details on, on the member show, but I, I click through, and their answer, you know, the, the, the ad, it's like, get get the facts, get more details. Like, hey, what is socialism anyways? So you click through, and their answer is, there is no such thing as socialism. Socialism is communism, and communism equals human rights abuses and death camps. <laughs> it's like, oh, man, that is quite a switcheroo. The answer to get the details on socialism, where do you think the balance should be, is there is no such thing as socialism. Anyone who tells you otherwise is lying. They're all secretly communists, and you need to run as far away from them as you can, lest you end up in a death camp. So there you go. Just some of the most blatant, out there, right in your face, with a, with a very thin facade of trickery in the ad itself. But as soon as you get to the website, just like the most blatant propaganda, I think I may have ever come across. I, I, I don't I don't know if I've seen anything more obviously deceptive than that. So. Uh, you know, for all the details and, and a long discussion about it, you know, go become a member or just if you are a member, make sure to get the updates. I'm posting that episode this week. It's it's recorded. I need to do a little bit of editing, but it's coming out this week. So keep an eye out for that. Be sure to listen to it and let me know what you think. For everyone else, keep the comments coming in on today's episode or anything else you like. The number again, 202-999-3991. That's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member, of course, or making one-time donations, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher. Help us in our mission to aggregate and amplify the best progressive media by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter and helping share all of the great content we're putting out there. And for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And it's a cry and shame how we get so trained, we can't see past our own sad stories and wonder what we're missing. We can't see past our own sad stories and forget how to listen. We can't see past our own sad stories and wonder.